Hi, I'm Caleb Amon. I'm the operations manager for Amon Landscape based in Lancaster, Ohio, and I am a hardscaper. All right, Caleb, let's get started here. And talking a bit about yourself, how did you get started in the hardscaping industry? I, I got into it like um, I guess a lot of guys did. I started out in lawn care just to get my business rolling and uh, bought a little mower when I was 16 and bought a mower, a trailer, and already had a truck, and I was in business. And I always wanted to, to get more into the construction end of things, so um, I started taking on little itty-bitty hardscape projects, if you will, and uh, started going to school at Columbus State in our landscape design build program. And started again, just just taking on larger and larger projects and projects I probably shouldn't have taken on because they were bigger than what I was really outfitted for. But always was learning a lot through that stuff. But yeah, my my start was in lawn care, but I quickly evolved into uh, landscape design, landscape construction, and uh, now it's all we do is landscape uh, landscape installation, landscape design, landscape construction. Amazing. So when can you give us a little bit of a timeline from when you started your, your lawn care business up until when you decided you were going to dive into this, uh, you know, landscape construction industry? Sure. My neighbor, when I was 15 years old, had uh, a lawn care business and I was working for them after school mowing grass because he was a teacher. So we'd go out and mow grass after school. And uh, I decided quickly I, I didn't necessarily want to work for anyone else. And so as soon as I get my driver's license and, of course, with due notice to my uh, employer, which actually I think was over the winter, but, you know, bought bought my mower and truck, bought my mower and some string trimmers, just all that stuff, and got going. Just solo mowed grass for a couple of years, did mulching, all that stuff. But I knew I wanted to get more into the construction aspect of things. So yeah, I was reading and consuming a lot. The The Internet really wasn't a thing yet. And, uh, it, you know, it was catching on, but it just wasn't like it is now, right? And so I would get, I would buy books from like Lowe's and then I started, uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time was in, was, was, uh, in college a year ahead of me and I went through the bookstore and found a bunch of books at, uh, the, at a community college in Columbus, Columbus State where I ended up going and bought a bunch of the curriculum from there, a lot of the, the textbooks that they were teaching in their landscape design build courses and in construction management. And so I was reading through those and learning through those. And then I went to school there and, uh, and my education hasn't stopped since. I'm always reading and consuming and watching YouTube and people on Instagram that I admire and all that. So, you know, really got heavy into landscape construction about, uh, let's see, I've been in this for 20 years now. So I got heavy into con- landscape construction really about 10 years ago. Um, we started to get out of lawn care to where we just focused on design build work. And I don't miss lawn care a bit. We sold off the accounts that we had, which weren't very many. We just had one guy that was full time with lawn care and uh, he took care of 40 or 50 properties a week. But we got rid of that and I don't miss it a bit and uh, decided to focus solely on landscape construction. And uh, and that's where we've been ever since. And, you know, we, we kind of stray off into some other types of work here and there, but we, we do pride ourselves on very, being very diverse in that regard. So. so what was the, I guess, catalyst to transferring from lawn care into landscape construction? Or what made you make up your mind that, you know what, lawn care isn't for me anymore. I'm going to go right into this landscape construction industry. The main thing was we were realizing our our customer service was lacking and in, in the lawn care end of things. And, you know, you got 40 clients a week or, you know, we like I said, we were a tiny little lawn care business. 
But we had 40 clients a week plus her spouse. Now you got 80, and then you get their goofball cousin in from Indiana or somewhere that thinks they know something, and they're complaining about your service too. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, well, you know, there's a blade of grass still on the sidewalk when they left. And, you know, you, you got to deal with all that nonsense, and you got to turn a crew. You get a phone call, and you got to turn a crew around to go deal with, you know, Grandma Crabtree that's having an issue. And and we just got to where we couldn't perf- we couldn't provide the customer service that our clients deserved or the level of, and I, I, I was kind of just getting burned out. I was just tired of all the customer service stuff because we were a hundred percent residential uh, or, you know, 90%. So you had all those issues with residential type, you know, clientele. We had, you know, we had some awesome clients, don't get me wrong, but just every week it always seemed like it was something in which we were managing and me to manage all those customer service concerns was taking probably 50 or probably 60% of my time just handling lawn care nonsense of flat tires and dealing with all that stuff and customer service and signing up new lawn treatment accounts. Cause we also were doing lawn treatments at the time too. So we were putting on fertilizer and spraying broadleaf weeds. And, and so we were really stretched thin cause I was doing a lot of the applications myself cause I was a licensed uh, applicator and we just weren't, we just got to where we were hurting our reputation big picture because of lawn care and lawn care was only 10% of our gross sales, but it was taking 50 to 60% of my time in customer service. And I just, we just decided it was time to cut the cord. And that winter that we did it or that fall that we sold everything and got out of it. I thought we only have one patio book for the spring. And I thought, man, what are we going to do? What have we done? And I was so, I was really worried and we only had two guys working for us at the time, but it was really one of those moments where it's like, man, is this going to work? Was this a bad call? But we've, we've never been slow. We've never, you know, I don't look, you know, looking back, you know, we've, we've never been slow. We've never had downtime since. And that was, you know, pushing 10 years ago now. So it's one of those things like you just get known for more of what you do the most of, you're going to get known the most for. And we are now known for, you know, landscaping, hardscaping, and, and then some stormwater management work. So, that is what begins to fill our funnels because that's just all we're doing all the time. And we don't get asked to mow grass ever. Or, you know what I mean? Like hardly ever do we get asked, you know, do you mow grass? Will you come give me a price on grass cutting? It's just not what we are known for now. So people ask me about that transition. It's like, well, you, you've got to just gear yourself more towards what you want to get into and the work will follow if, if you're doing a good job. So absolutely so getting back to that to that moment where you decided to sell the lawn care business and like you said you had one patio signed up and you were thinking you know what what am i going to do next let's talk about how you were acquiring clients back then i know you talked a little bit about you know doing the work and doing quality work and and getting the clients from that you know based maybe on referrals but how how did you get acquire clients back then, and how has it changed up until this point? You know, one of the one of the great foundations, one of the great things about starting a lawn care business is you get established. Um, at least we did this. Is how it worked for us was, you know, we got established in the community as a you know a green industry service, right? And so we already had that foothold, if you will, of being you know lawn care and landscape contractors or you know lawn care and landscape providers. So. We were doing hardscape jobs all the while, you know, doing lawn care. And, you know, I'm sure that's a great question because it's like the work would, would come in. But once we got going on solely focusing on the, the hardscaping end, that, uh, rapport and those referrals just kept compounding and building on each other, if that makes sense. 
And, um, you know, aside from, you know, we did some marketing back when we still would do some post, we, you know, we would actually like make announcements to our lawn care clients and like, Hey, you know, we'd send out an announcement or a press release or a flyer or whatever you want to call it. And even email, you know, stating, you know, we're, we're focusing on landscape design, landscape construction. And, uh, you know, if we're going to be of service, you know, please let us know yet, you know, all those kind of things. So that, you know, that's kind of the, the main way we, we really began the transition. And then we just started also just marketing hardscape services as well. And, uh, it was, it was a slow process and we only had two guys. So we weren't, it didn't take a lot of work to keep us busy. You know, now we, we consume quite a bit of work. And so we need to keep our lead funnel pretty active. You know, even still we're a small company. We have, you know, we'll have four full-time guys going into the spring and we've got two full-time on through the winter. So, a lot of the work, it's just so funny. It just appears. I hate, I hate to sound audacious, but it just, it just, unfortunately it's a hot economy too. And so that's one thing to keep in mind, especially the young guys that are just, just swamp busy. It's not always going to be like this. There's times where it's going to be slower and you're actually going to have to hunt some work. But I, Mike, I think it's straight from your question, which I can be known to do, uh, to get sidetracked. So if you need to rein me back in, man, please don't hesitate. No, man, that was, that was really good. So you talked a lot about, you know, acquiring clients and, and since you had a lawn care business, you kind of had a, a step in the right direction of acquiring these clients. But at this point in your business, how are the leads coming in? Is it still coming in the same way? Has it changed throughout the years? Or in, you talked a bit about the hot economy and that, that helps getting these leads coming in, uh, consistently. But, you know, how has it changed over the time? Is it, is it a different method that you're acquiring these leads at this point? You know, it's it, even through lawn care. And we're in a small, you know, rural community that I say, I say small. It's really not small anymore. It's grown so much. Uh, referral, like any, like anybody is a, a huge part of our business. Um, we do a lot of referral work. We're very, but a lot of those referrals come from our activity and our involvement in a lot of community organizations. Uh, my wife, Brittany, who owns the company, she's on a, on a couple different boards in the community, like advisory boards and, you know, community boards of, uh, board of directors and things like that. That brings in a lot of work. I'm involved in a few uh, networking groups, good, good, strong ones. There's a lot of bad ones out there, but a couple of good, strong ones that has a really good, strong network of people. So between networking and essentially referrals and the other big one, I think it's somehow and still in this modern age is still one of the best kept secrets. I don't know how is a good website, a website that's super heavily and well done uh, heavily. I say heavily is super well done with search engine optimization for your area and what you want to focus on. Our website brings us in a lot of work. It's crazy. And uh, we have a good website that's well optimized. And that's a big part. So referrals on our website are really good for us. Absolutely. So in terms of work that Almond Landscaping is bringing in, are you uh, more so focused on residential or commercial? Are you leaning more towards one these days? When it comes to, for the most part, what we're beginning to notice in our, in our little, uh, trend here, we're, we're beginning to notice that residential work, we're, we're gonna, it looks like, uh, it's solely gonna be hardscape construction, landscape design, landscape installation, softscapes. Uh, that seems like that's gonna be the tenet of the, of that division, if you will. We're, we've pseudo started a, a second division and it's handling more of the commercial, uh, this sounds fancier than it is, but is, you know, is we're getting a lot into stormwater management type work. We've got a great contract with a, a company that, that procures a lot of workforce that we subcontract for that we're doing a lot of, uh, and it's not the most glamorous work in the world, but 
it's helped us uh, with our equipment, uh, our equipment game, if you will, and helped us, you know, expand our company. And so we're replacing like the catch basins you see in parking lots that, that you know, that take in stormwater and the curbs and all that. And then installing riprap on facilities and drainage structures and stuff like that. So we've gotten into that a good bit. It's kind of a second division that Brittany and I essentially have run. Uh, we're hiring a guy in the spring that's going to take that over and get us back out of the field so we can keep pumping in more work uh, or more leads. And uh, I've got a, a couple. I got a couple other guys that are still going to focus solely. My main man Bo, who's been with me for 20 years, he's going to be our still and as he has been our lead and our main guy on hardscape hardscape construction. So we're going to kind of get back into the driver's seat of the company. And because uh, Britt and I performed a lot of work in the field this year on the stormwater management end of things, and uh, while Bo is out still hardscaping, so. We want to delegate the, uh, the the stormwater management work and commercial style work over to our our, ne- our new guy John that's coming in who used to work for us years ago. He's just moving back to Ohio and uh, was needing a job, and I was thrilled to have him back because he he was he was a fantastic uh, employee, really skilled guy, and so we're really excited to have him back and have him run essentially his own division. So long story short, um, that's kind of going to head up our commercial division. John is. You know, long story short, on the hardscaping end, we're still going to be hardscapers. We're still we're still installing hardscapes. I love, you know, essentially that's where my heart and soul is, is, is hardscape construction, landscape construction. But I really do enjoy and I've always wanted to have a facet of our company that did environmental type construction, which is getting into essentially stormwater management. But, you know, installing rip wraps and, and figuring out ways to handle water better and stuff like that. So we're, we're excited for what the 2020 is holding for us. Long answer. Geez. No, perfect. Awesome. And getting a little bit more in depth into that, this might help out some of our listeners. Uh, in terms of creating a new division um, to handle this stormwater management, uh, what was your... What made the decision to make it a, a different division as opposed to keeping it under uh, or as part of Almond Landscaping? It, you know, it's, it'll be a division of Almond Landscape. Britt and I go back and forth on if it'll actually have a different name or a different DBA, um, which our company just actually we just transferred from a, a limited liability comp- company to an S corporation, which we are now considered uh, in 2020. So I don't know what the rules are with with divisions and subsidiaries and all that crazy talk, but. I think it's just the main thing of like John, our guy who's coming back, can build hardscapes. He's a really skilled builder, but he's more qualified in the technical and the civil uh, construction end of things. And so, um, you know, even deck building, stuff like that. So we kind of want to let we kind of want to get a truck for him, get him outfitted with all the tools and stuff he needs and equipment. And and John's a real self-starter. So. He, we're going to let him bid work and he's just going to report to us and um, we're going to kind of turn him loose. I'm a real big believer in, in turning your people loose to estimate projects and or to manage. I really try to be hands off to an extent. Now, I still sell and design the hardscape work. Britt and I both do. Um, but the commercial division, there's a little less of that back and forth needed with the client. And so it's more black and white of like you get a set of specs, you bid it, you win it or you don't. And uh, and John's going to be real good with that. So we're just excited to turn that over. And we still focus on, you know, hardscape and landscape construction. And and uh, that's where the bulk of our residential work is. But our commercial work is kind of going to fall under John. So uh, we're big believers in delegating to guys. I had one of my guys the other day. This is a, a, an interesting story. And I, I've always heard this, but I've never really bought into it. I, I sent one of my guys up to a, a commercial property to go up and look at a, a huge grass deadheading, ornamental grass deadheading project. And uh, I sent him up, told him to get me an, a, an estimate on man hours on it. 
which he did. And he, he told me 10 man hours on it. Um, and then I put it into our estimating software with a, with a service call fee, you know, dump fee, all that stuff. But one thing my guy didn't tell me was about, or he didn't, you know, he didn't think about, and I didn't coach him on this. So this is my fault about how much debris was going to come off site. He didn't really take that into consideration. He just knew it had to come off site and ended up being like, when they got there, my, my other guy called and was like, man, this is going to be four dump trailer loads of grass is coming off here. I was like, Oh man, we didn't account for that. I was like, well, we got 10 man hours to get it in. Let's see what we can do. We found them a dump nearby and all that. Well, they ended up, st- he said they had to hustle, but they still hit their man hour goal. And I never used to think guys would really get into that, but I'm seeing it more and more. The more we, I'm not going to say push it because I'm not going to be one of those bu- bosses that just pushes man hours constantly, but uh, it was really neat to see. So I, I took, Kind of a small leap of faith. I turned Keith loose on estimating it, and it turned out well. It saved me a trip. You know, it saved me probably an hour and a half of driving and looking at it and, you know, all that stuff. And he just gave me the numbers. I put it in, turned it loose. We won the project, and uh, they got it done in the time a lot, and we were profitable. And that was really cool. So I'm kind of proud of that little step for our company. And for being in business for 20 years, you'd think I'd be better about that. But, you know, the reality is I'm not perfect. And, we're not perfect and we're always growing and trying to get better at what we're doing. So I'm kind of proud of that, that little feat the other day. And, and uh, I'm psyched on the guys for, you know, getting it done to make it what it needs to be. So. Absolutely. So one last question about these commercial uh, contracts. I've got zero experience with commercial work. Um, I know some of our listeners would be interested in possibly pursuing commercial work. But where are these commercial contracts coming from? How are you, uh, you know, finding them? How are you being able to bid on them? What, what, can you give our audience a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a gist of, you know, getting contract work? One, one of the biggest things, even, even with residential, people will do business with people they know, like, and trust for starters. Um, there's kind of two different worlds of commercial, it appears to me, and probably more than that. There's going to be the commercial work where it's like, hey, I know Bob who owns an accounting office and they need, you know, some work done over their accounting office. Well, that's, you know, for, you know, that's commercial work, right? And then there's, you know, commercial work where it's you're working for a corporation that, you know, performs, uh, that has a contract to manage a bunch of properties and then you're going and doing, they're following their specs for that kind of work. So, it's it's one of those things like a lot of our commercial work comes from people that we, you know, again, and that's the thing I have a benefit of, of being in business now for 20 years and having an established name in the community for 20 years. You know, people, you know, what I've been, one of the things I've been saying is like we're an overnight success 20 years later, right? And so now that we've been in business for so long, we have, an, a, and really 10 years ago is really where it's really seemed to hit its stride. Uh, you know, people just get to know what you're doing. And the referrals just kind of, you know, just, just, ne- and let me back this up too, Mike. There's so much to this, man. I get so excited talking about this stuff, but, but networking is so important in my opinion and getting to know people and meeting everyone you can and shaking hands and, and trying to figure out, you know, who are decision makers in corporations or businesses and, you know, going to chamber of commerce functions, anything you can, anywhere you can meet people to get into that kind in that world, essentially, if you want to get into commercial work, because there's also just commercial bid work. And so those are things where you're going to go to, um, there's websites that are strictly dedicated to, uh, they're like, they're bid rooms where companies and big general contractors will submit and put plans out on these online bid rooms. 
and you download the specs or buy the specs, and then you bid off that and you submit a bid. And that's one way to win commercial work. And that takes commercial bid work for the most part goes generally to the lowest bidder. That's how that stuff works. That's why it's so important to know your numbers. And it's okay to be the low bidder if you're profitable at that low bid. That's why it's so important to be so lean, to run efficient, and to know your numbers. Is you can be the low bidder and be profitable. Low bid is not necessarily the bad thing. And so, because there's other guys that may just be throwing a price at the wall, not really knowing, or they may be busy and they don't care, so they throw a high price on it. You know, things like that. So commercial bid work is super important to know your numbers because it's going to go lowest price. But if you're profitable at that, that's the biggest thing. So between just getting to know general contractors, find a small general contracting firm in your area where they maybe have 12 people working for them. And reach out to them and say, hey, I really want to get into commercial contracting work and subcontract work. Uh, you know, if you happen to have a project, I'm a small landscape contractor. I've got a bobcat and three guys and we're willing to work. Uh, if you could, you know, if there's any chance that we could subcontract for you at some point, please let me know. I'd love to be a, a you know, service to you. And, uh, we, we specialize in this. We can do grass seeding or, you know, tree planting or whatever and just keep making those contacts, keep making those contacts. And that's what I've done for 10 and 50, uh, hell, my whole career. But it's gotten more to where I'm trying to do this stuff lately where I'm really trying to meet these guys that are contract administrators and stuff like that. Uh, people that are decision makers and people that dictate who they send bids out to and, and all that kind of stuff. So long answer again, but man, I get excited talking about this stuff. So bear with me. For sure. I, I can definitely feel your passion for it. And, you know, great advice about networking and just getting yourself out there to kind of get these jobs coming in. Especially if you want to get into this commercial work, but let's reel this back a bit and touch on residential hardscape construction jobs. I want to know a little bit more about your sales process. We talked a little bit about acquiring leads, but once you get those leads, what do you do with them um, in terms of contacting them, setting up an appointment, setting up a consultation? Can we get a little bit into that in terms of the, the first touch point with that, that customer and where you take that first consultation? Absolutely. So, you know, a lead will either come in through our website or through a Facebook message or, uh, you know, on our on our uh, our company, you know, phone line, or even onto my cell. Somehow, somebody gets my cell phone somehow, which is fine. By the way, I give it out all the time for for work work contacts. Geez. So, you know, we'll return a phone call. I try to get on the phone if if possible uh, for a few reasons to begin to pre-screen a client to talk to them, see what they want to do. So, a call will come in, or a request will come in. I will try to to talk with them on the phone if at all possible, or for whatever reason, if it's you know, an email that they want responded to via email. But I try to get a, a, a concept of the scope of the projects. I want to know, you know, you can kind of gauge what they know about landscaping or landscape construction through a conversation. If they start out the conversation immediately with, hi, do you give free quotes? Right there's an instant red flag to me. I'm I'm so disinterested in that phone call at that point that it's it's not even funny because I know immediately that person is a just budget shopping or price shopping. And so they don't they're not going to respect my time when I drive half an hour, an hour, whatever to their property and take all this time and experience and tour the property with them and all stuff. So one of the first things is like how they how they set the call up, I guess. And so one of the the kisses of death for us, you know, working with you is if you ask if we get free estimates, because for the most part, we don't. 
we have a $75 consult fee initially on new brand new clients, clients that we've never worked with before. And, uh, unless they're super local, but if they're super local within five miles, I want to get in front of them anyways, because of a thing we've kind of coined, I think, which is zip code domination. And we want to be the contractor locally. We want to be the people you're going to. Um, so I'll waive the fee on those usually just because like chances are they know someone else locally and I at least want to get in front of them. So they know me, they know my face and they might refer to like, yeah, we had almond out. And, you know, it didn't work out for us to do anything with them, but you might try them out. And so we're always trying to build our name locally that way. So we'll get a thing figured out where uh, we'll figure out what their, their project is. Sometimes if I don't feel good about the call, I'll ask if they've had any pricing on it. I'll figure out what their square footage of their project is and just kind of give them a rough ballpark of like, well, most of our patio projects start at $10,000. Is that something that's agreeable to you? Or would we need to try to trim that back? Or do you have a better budget than that? And so we do all this very tactfully, right? Not just very rude and crude. We, you know, so we run through a process like that and then we meet, you know, then we'll meet generally as soon as we can. We don't want to lose the opportunity. I'll print out from our county auditor's website has a thing you can download on uh, their website is a, a footprint of the house online through the county auditor's website. And so I'll take that with me because it helps save some time taking dimensions. I will uh, then go through a walkthrough with the client. You know, this is pretty standard stuff here, but We'll take dimensions, elevation. So we'll run through um, a thing where, you know, we'll, we'll see what the client wants to achieve. We'll really try to tack them down as to what their budget is. It does me. And this is why I say this to them is, you know, I know it's not a fun conversation to have, but if you have any idea what your budget is, be it whatever. And then I'll go through like projects like this generally run about 20 or 30,000 or 5,000 or whatever. And so if they get kind of cold feet at that or whatever, and the reason I, and so then I also come back around and say, and the reason I say this is because if I design you a project that's, if I design you a project that's $70,000 and your budget's 20, you know, nobody's going to, you know, benefit from that. And so, you know, in that way, it doesn't, uh, you know, nobody wins in that case. So we want to tailor a project to you that fits your budget. And so, you know, that's why the budget is so important. And so we talk about that. And uh, if they, if they still just say, well, you know, come up with something, get back with me. I kind of am, am hesitant to that, but I'll draw something or I'll even just spec something kind of middle of the road. I'll spec something kind of middle of the road. And um, that way, if we come back, we can say, look, we can add lighting. We can take the lighting out, you know, kind of work through there. But if they won't give me a number to work off of, I get real skeptical about the project in general. And and also, too, it tells me I haven't done enough to build trust or rapport with them because they, some folks will think like, well, if I tell you twenty thousand dollars, you're going to hit me for $19,999. You're going to do everything you can to nail that budget, right? And not like, well, hey, actually, the project came in at seventeen five. Awesome. We beat your budget, right? Which it never does, right? It's always like they want the moon. And I know myself, too. I'm shopping for trucks right now. I want the world for twenty grand. <laughs> you know? So, like, I get it. So I try to be empathetic with my clients, too, in that regard. So I'm like, that's, that's kind of our, our initial process. So we'll take that information back to the office. We'll either do something quick in uh, our, our design software and, uh, you know, generally I'll shoot something back to them via email, a concept and some pricing. And then and this is a this is the bad salesman in me. If I was a good salesman, I would set an appointment. I'd go meet with them. I'd present it and I'd tack them down on the spot for how much do you know, do we want to do? Let's get some money down. Let's schedule it. Let's do it. I don't push like that a lot. It's not my style. I'm really bad about that. And if I was a better salesman, I would go for the close and I would I would just, you know, crush on that close. So the projects that I really want, um, I might go that extra step to try to meet with them, make sure it's painted out. But generally what we'll do is we'll get a project together and we'll uh, email it back to them with pricing and a, a 3D rendering 
And generally it's just going to be a patio with like six plants and a tree. And we don't get into like really large landscape installs uh, like some of my peers do that I admire so much uh, on Instagram. Uh, we, our general project is going to hover ten to $20,000. Uh, we don't get into like $60,000 backyards too often, especially because of our rural demographic. But it's kind of one of the things we've gotten known for. And I've got buddies locally. They do, on average, $60,000 projects. And it's one of those things, the more you do of one thing, the more you get known for, right? If I really wanted to go down that road, I would make an effort to get into those project, those large projects regular. But we've really found a sweet spot in these ten dollars to $20,000 jobs. We're in and out in a week or a week and two or three days. And we're hitting good numbers on those projects, and we really like them, and I'm cool with that. My ego is now out of the game. My ego used to be in the game big time of like, oh, we did this patio. We did that patio. I don't care about that anymore. I want the profitable work, and that's all I care about. Now, once in a while, I would be lying if I said I, I don't get into like, we want this job because it's on the main street in town, and we want the exposure. And doesn't mean I'll lose money on it, but we might do some things to make sure that we we do win the bid or you know win the project. Or I might try to a little harder to sell it. But for the most part, we'll submit that stuff via email. I'll then call a client, check up on it. And we, we have a really good close ratio on most of that type of work. Again, that referral thing, that's where the referral is so strong and so good that I guess, fortunately, and again, because it's a good economy, us sales guys don't have to work too hard to close on projects. So You, you touched on, uh, you know, talking about your your company's like ten to $20,000. That's like their, your, your prime spot where you know you're going to be mo- making the most money. You're in and out. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people, like you said, they have maybe an ego tied into wanting to get those big jobs, even though their company's not outfitted for those bigger jobs. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you stick to that ten to twenty thousand and not jumping towards that sixty thousand uh, dollar, you know, price range jobs? Sure. Now, a big part of me wants, you know, I do want to be into like I don't. I'm getting. We're getting to where we don't like touching jobs much under five thousand dollars because because our mobilization costs with having a mini excavator and a bobcat and the ditch witch and three and you know four guys and all the hardware. This is part of knowing your numbers. To, to get all that machinery rolling away from the shop, you know, we can't touch a day's work with two guys for under $1,500, and that's with no machinery, right? And so, like, the mobilization costs are so are so high, it's easier for us to be profitable on big jobs where we just move all this machinery one time, and it's a better value for our clients, generally, the bigger the project, because all the machinery's there, we're all moved in, we got all our tools there. Um, and we, we've just hit this sweet spot with, with 10 and $20,000 patios. And we still do, you know, some 40s, some 50s. Our commercial projects are anywhere from five to $40,000, just all over the place. But I know we're beginning to kind of get into this bare minimum thing of like where we give our clients the best value because of moving assets around or, you know, mobilizing equipment and trucks and people and stuff. We're starting to need to get into these. I would say middle sized jobs or whatever, which is funny because there's companies that would like just dream of doing a $10,000 project. There's companies that do $100,000 projects regularly or half a million dollars. You know, so it's so funny the almost hierarchy there or just what is normal to some folks, right? And what's normal to us is a $10,000 or $20,000 patio. And we've just, we've just figured out a good system for getting in on these jobs and getting out. Our guys have a good timeline of like $10,000 project needs to be done in a week with three guys. That's pretty much where where our estimating lays out. That. Now, of course, there's jobs where like, and again, this is a, so important knowing your costs, right? <clears throat> it can be a little different if none of our machines are there. Well, we're just billing out on labor and our labor rate 
And, uh, you know, like that grass job, you know, we were able to get in and out with two guys for a day for $1,500 or whatever it was. And we were good and profitable, hit our numbers for the day. But if we start bringing machinery into that and, and all that kind of stuff, that gets it up around 2500 or 3000 just depending on the task involved. So, Mike, knowing your numbers is just so important. I can't stress that enough, especially as I had a business that crashed, you know, 10 years ago. I wrecked my first company, which I've been, you know, really open about that in a lot of other interviews and, and in my, you know, my daily Instagram stories and all that stuff. Like, I, you know, I, I can say this from experience. I ran a company prior where I wasn't managing my numbers. And I paid for it. I suffered for it because I didn't know my numbers. I was bidding jobs, kind of just guessing. And again, my passion and ego was in it to the point of like, I didn't care if we we're making money, which is ignorant because you got to make money. You got to make money. Your profit is what drives the business, right? It's what allows you to pay for things. And uh, I didn't care so much about it because I just wanted to be building hardscapes. I just wanted to be planting trees. And so I, I got away from even though I knew in my heart that things were not good and this wasn't a good way to run a business, I just kept thinking if I hit a million dollars in sales, that that top line will cover all my other bull crap. And the reality is it won't. It just, it just becomes exponential. It just expands, you know, the problems you're going to have. So our, our company, we just touched $600,000 in sales this year, which we're real proud of, but we're profitable at 600. You can do 6 million and not make a dime. Right. And so, the bottom line number is like the most important thing. And so you got to be managing your company, managing your numbers to where your profit margins and your profit is what dictates, you know, what you do. Um, you know, I, I know guys that do some work that's super cool looking and they're not making any money. And I know some guys that are doing work that is not glamorous or pretty at all. And they're making a cool, they're, they're making fantastic money. So, and you can do both. You, you can do glamorous projects and make money and you can do not glamorous projects and not make money. Just managing the numbers is so is so critical. I can't stress that enough. And especially in a good economy, it's going to get more and more important as the economy tightens up at some point here. Uh, you know, it just is 2020 here, and we're in a really good swing of things. It'll tighten up at some point. How much, I don't know. But, you know, mm-hmm. these things are cyclical. So you want to you try to be prepared for the downtimes. Absolutely. And such a big takeaway is just knowing your numbers. And I know uh, you guys have talked about Element Software before in your stories. We've got a great interview with Mark Bradley of Element on our podcast. And definitely, definitely check out that software if, if uh, you know, it's just so perfect for, for breaking down your numbers. And uh, they also have a free budgeting tool, which is also amazing. Um, but moving this along a little bit, you, you talked about knowing your numbers and we haven't had a, a hardscaper on the show yet that actually charges a consultation fee. Can you talk about why you charge a consultation fee? Um, the decision that you made to, to charge this fee and if other companies in your area are also charging this fee? The, the biggest thing with charging a consultation fee is. Like I said, we wait, we don't, you know, if we've done work with you in the past, we don't charge a consult fee. And if, uh, you know, you're super local to our shop because we've done, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of work within five miles of our shop, which is wonderful. We want to keep that going. The less we got to pay guys to drive, you know, the more value we can give our clients of on-site productive time, right? And so, you know, we can give our clients better projects and better value projects the closer they are, the less time they're paying our guys to drive. Does that make sense? So, you know, so if I can get in front of people locally, we waive it. Um, but for the most part, our company, I have very little time and I'm not in the field hardly at all anymore. With the exception of this past summer, I was in a good bit. Most I've been in a long time, but even then it wasn't that much. 
Um, I didn't even, I barely picked up a paver for hire. Bo and his guys handled that and that was awesome. And he's a good guy and he's, you know, he's outfitted and, and suited well to do that. And that's the point. I want to put those kind of people in positions to excel and take all of us collectively in the company, you know, to new places. Cause the more profitable the company is, the more we can pay our guys, the nicer equipment we can buy. And it's just a self-perpetuating cycle. And that's what, that's what we want to build. So, so with the consultation fee, the biggest thing is it's, it's a, uh, a selection process. It kind of, you know, weaves people out real fast. And I know we've lost opportunity because of it. Um, you know, I'm sure some people are like, well, I'm just not going to pay a fee, even though they still paid somebody to do a patio. You know what I mean? But the biggest thing is, is it weeds out who is serious and who isn't. And what we find ourselves, and, and another part of that is the more I work, the more I say that we have a consultation fee. When I started doing it, I was super... I was not real confident about it. And people could hear that in my voice, I think, and or consciously or not subconsciously, whatever. But now I just I have I have no time for BS. And so it's just we have a consultation fee. It's seventy five dollars. It's non-refundable. It does not get applied to the project. It just buys a little bit of our time and fuel to come out and consult with you of our 20 years of experience. And, you know, if it's a small patio project, we'll give you a simple little design. If you need a full planting plan. Um, our design fees start at $200, blah, blah, blah. And so the biggest thing about the consult fee is it weeds out who's serious and who isn't. And I only have time really for people who are serious. I don't have a lot of time to try to sell someone something. And I, again, I don't want to sell anybody anything. I want people to feel like they purchased, not like they were sold. And it, it eases my conscience at night if I'm not pushing things on people. And the only, the only evil salesman technique I do, and again, that's why I'm not a great salesman, right? The only evil salesman technique I do, and I, I tell my clients this from the get, is when your project's done, I'm going to set up a couple sample uh, landscape lights, you know, either some up lights into the trees or some wall lights on the hardscaping, if they didn't already opt into it, just to show you what the potential is. Because landscape lighting is so cool. And, like, sometimes you can't illustrate that to people until they see it on their own stuff. And so I will do that. That's the only, only evil salesman thing I do. But – the, the biggest thing is like it weeds out who's serious, who isn't. And then I go talk to these serious clients. We close on most of our clients that, you know, pay the fee. And if they don't, oh, well, I've get I've got a little bit of money, you know, to recoup some time, even though we all know how much time is involved in visiting with a client, producing an estimate, even a sketch concept, whatever. We're the only people around in our county and possibly up in Columbus, Ohio, which is our, our next big city to us, that charges a consult fee, aside from like landscape architects or serious landscape designers. Uh, as far as like landscape contractors go or whatever, we're the only people around to charge it. And I, I have people tell me that, like, well, I had so-and-so out and they don't charge me. And I, that's fine. I know them. They're good company. They're good people. And they'll do you a great job. And, uh, and generally, I don't want to bid against my buddies that are, are good contractors anyways. We kind of have a, a, a weird little thing where we kind of stay out of each other's way um, respectfully. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something I, w- one of the main drivers, this, this story is one, the main reason I started charging fees is I went up <clears throat> to a project up in North Columbus, Ohio, which is an hour drive from me. And I went and met with this guy, actually it was supposed to be his wife. Well, his wife was running late from work. So the husband had to be there. And I went up to, to talk to this guy about the landscape and maybe I was even presenting a plan, but this dude had no interest in what I was saying whatsoever because it wasn't his pet project. It wasn't his thing. It was his wife's. 
And I'll never forget, there's a TV on in the background. And this dude kept looking over my shoulder to see what was on TV. And I was felt so disrespected. And I learned my lesson there of like, A, I will never meet with the not decision maker person, whoever it is, if they're not both there or if, you know, whoever wanted the project the most isn't there. And I'm charging console fees from here on because I'm getting paid for this nonsense in some manner or another. And uh, every time I drive by that, which is not very often, but up uh, up by that that area, I think, yep, that was the one that started why I'm I'm done. Uh, and you you know you'll have those experiences, but it was an interesting experience on my end as far as far as like you know learning like okay, always make sure that the person that wants the project is in the meeting, and if not, you know reschedule the thing and don't try to push through it because this dude was not into it. We never did win the project, and I wasted a ton of time and. I just got to the point where I was done wasting time with people that didn't respect my time as little as I charge for it for a consult fee because it's not about making money on the consult. It's about qualifying and weeding out who's serious. So there we go. Absolutely. So landing a job, do you have a payment plan structure that you follow there at your company? And uh, continuing that question into talking about a horror story that you've had in your business, because a lot of horror stories come from getting payments from customers. Anything that you'd want to talk about to our audience to maybe help them, um, you know, set something in place to avoid a situation that you got yourself into? Absolutely. Um, always being very upfront with dollars in the cost of a project and change orders, especially like what your policy is with change orders. That's a huge thing. You know, as far as the process goes, you know, once the client approves the project, we will draft up the official paperwork, which is on a contract. It'll have all the details in it. But at the same time, like safely, legally and ethically vague, if that makes sense. Right. You don't want to get too, you know, you don't want to say four hundred and thirty six and a half square feet. You want to say approximately 436 square feet. You know what I mean? Like you want to be you want to always have plus or minus or say approximately because. Things on a project tend to change, and you know if somebody wants to get to be a real stickler and really put it to you, then well, there's 400, and, there's only 430 square feet here, you know, yada yada yada. So stuff like that, I always advise putting approximately on all your quotes, and then also putting a quote uh, expiration date on uh, your proposal. So if you send a proposal out, it's only good for three months or two months or whatever your time frame is, so that if they come back to you in a year, a you don't have to honor it, but b if something changes, like let's say a mulching project and the whole place is full of weeds in four months when they call you back, you know, you didn't price it that way. Right. So putting expiration dates on your things. So then coming back around to a horror story, you know, one of the, the biggest things that would prevent this is, uh, it was one, it was our, one of our first big projects ever. And I still get like nauseous talking about this, but it was such a great learning, learning lesson. We did a $40,000 retaining wall project, beautiful project, it's, it was really cool. It was really something awesome. And we really can't talk about it in social media stuff because of the agreement we signed after we sued these folks to get paid. But long story short is we, there were several change orders, none of which got signed or approved in writing, followed by we did for payment structure, we did 50% down, 50% on completion on a $40,000 project. For us, that was the biggest job we'd ever done. And the the bad thing about that is that was a ton of money to us then. It still is. But what we do now on about any size job under $4,000, we break jobs down into draw payments, scheduled draw payments. And I owe this to uh, Tracy McNaughton, a client we worked for years ago, and uh, Eric Triplett, the pond digger. 
encouraging us to move to the draw system. But essentially what we do is we'll schedule the draws and the payments on a project. Let's say it's a $10,000 project. We'll schedule four $2,500 installments, or you can make it, you can make it $10,000 payments, whatever you think you need to do. But we'll take that project and we'll break it down. Okay. One, you know, let's say $2,500 to reserve your scheduling, you know, appointment or which you can only do that kind of stuff with, rapport of being an established business or if you're a good salesman or, you know, just, just confident with that stuff. And then another $2,500 is due as soon as materials arrive on site and you list out, you know, like as soon as pavers are on site, we receive a $2,500 check. And then, uh, once the project reaches 50% completion and that's defined by the pavers are laid, but not cut in and, you know, soil work is done or whatever. Then we get another 25, you know, another 25% or another 2,500 and then on completion, 2,500. So that way, it's the most fair system, and we like to break them down a little bit more than that just because. And what will end up happening, clients will end up actually writing like two or three – so they don't want to write a bunch of checks, right? So they'll write out like, well, here's draw three and four. You can only do this with rapport, right, because things can get muddy quick. But, you know, they'll they'll write you draw payments. So what we like to do is schedule the draw payments to be the most fair for both parties. We get paid for what we've done. The client get, is paying for what they've received as opposed to a 50-50 system where it's like they got half your money, you know, you got half their money up front, you get, the ball is in your court 100% and they're they're at a ton of risk. As opposed to at the end of the project, now you the contractor are accepting all the risk because the client can say, "Hey, I don't like those two shrubs there. We didn't agree on that. I'm holding $10,000 back from you until you do that or until no, this paper was not supposed to look like this." You know what I mean? There's a ton of leverage either direction and the draw system makes it way more equitable from both parties. So we've, we've moved on to the draw system. It would have saved us a lot of headache and heartache with change orders and uh, draw system on that big project. And uh, that was a nightmare. We had to sue them to get paid for our last bit of money. We ended up in court. Uh, we settled out of court. We got paid about half of what was due to us. And then the attorneys got most of it after that. Anyways, it was a nightmare. I learned a lot of lessons on that one. One of these days when Britt and I feel like doing it, not crying the whole time we're talking about it, we'll do a YouTube video about it. But those are those quick stories, that one nightmare. And regardless of how long you're in contracting, you're going to have some gnarly situation like that arise. It's just inevitable. Now, the tighter you run your ship and the better you are with change orders and writing out contracts specifically and doing what you said you were going to do and those kind of things, the chances of them are very slim of, of having anything nasty, but once in a while they're going to lurk and creep in and you got to be prepared for them, which is why documentation is so important. So there you go, Mike. Let's get into uh, talking about maybe a tool, a product, something that you've either invested in recently or you've got your eyes on investing into 2020, something that's going to improve your efficiency, something that you're, you, you know, you, um, you're gung ho on any, any product tool, anything like that, that you'd want to talk about. Yeah, we're huge on mechanization right now. So we're trying to reduce labor any way we possibly can. So we're buying whatever tool we can afford, which you should always buy the best tools you can afford at the time. You know, so we bought a mini excavator. That thing was incredible. Took our company to new levels, saved so much labor on different things and allowed us to take on a lot of different type of work we normally wouldn't have. Uh, the tool we just bought, and I say tool, we bought a Canicom powered tracked wheelbarrow, if you will, or a you know mud buggy, whatever you want to call them, concrete buggy, but it's on tracks. And uh, the, the dump bed swivels and articulates. Uh, we'll dump both sides of the machine forward. 
And uh, a couple of my buddies, Andy Mulder and Jeremy Swihart, both have them and swear by them. And I, after having this one, we bought a used one, which I think we'll buy a new one next year because I can see this thing being real handy. And as soon as we start having downtime with it, because it's pretty rough, the one we bought, uh, I can see buying a new one to avoid any downtime with it. Uh, that thing is awesome. But, uh, you know, on the, the human resources end of it, we you mentioned LMN earlier. We use LMN for a lot of things, but we do time tracking with that with the guys. So the guys clock in the projects and we can track man hours on jobs, which is huge because now we can get on a computer and look up where the man hours are at on a job and know how many man hours. You know, if, if we do an autopsy on a project, we can look back and say, OK, cool. We had 89 man hours in that job. And you just look back real quick instead of like what we used to do if we would do it at all. We go get their paperwork reports out because guys had to fill out paperwork reports every day. Uh, at least the foreman or project leader did. And. Then we have to tally up the hours. Well, this way it's a digital format. So that kind of mechanization is awesome. And we bought Element into Element like six months or God, I don't know, almost a year now. And then we became Element just for clarity's sake here, dude, you know, full disclosure. We're now Element. They call it VIPs or some cheesy name, but we're, you know, ambassadors for Element. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But it is a great program. It is a phenomenal program. We paid for it for like eight months before we came on board as an affiliate with them. Just so that's all out in the open. In, in the hardscape end of things, Pave Tool makes a ton of great tools. We love those guys, and we got a lot of their stuff. I mean, I just can't be an advocate enough for, like, if you're starting a hardscape business or if whatever, buy, you know, if you're going to buy a pickup truck for yourself, maybe don't buy a $40,000 truck, buy a $20,000 truck, and buy $20,000 for the hardscaping tools instead. Do you know what I mean? Like, do whatever you can to make yourself more efficient because the profit is in efficiency. Uh, sometimes it's hard to pony up the money to spend. I was kind of like, I used to be, you know, we bought a, one of the biggest things was such a game changer for us way back in the day. We bought a, a clamp for picking up like stair treads, like big monolithic stair treads, stair steps. We used to set those in by hand with straps and pipes and roll them into place and all this ignorant nonsense. And then we bought a clamp and I thought, how in the world did we used to set these things without a clamp? And then we got a pneumatic lifter and we set them in place with a pneumatic lifter now. It just you've got to save your people's backs, and regardless, you just get more efficient. So you know you still continue to charge the same, but you're getting projects in the ground faster. So any labor saving tool you can buy, I, I am all for everything we can to get more efficient. At the end of the day, Caleb, um, do you have any any people online that you follow to get inspiration from, or to gain any knowledge from that you'd want to shout out? Any mentors that have really helped you along the way? There's there's tons of mentors and you know gosh I followed guys like the the OGs if you will the Marty Grunders and Frank Gandora and uh, Frank Mariani and all these big names you know the guy the OGs of the industry right the guys that have built five and and sixty million dollar companies and before social media right and so I've, I followed I grew up following those guys or I grew up in the industry following those guys now that the social media thing has kicked in. Uh, the young guys that I really admire, like Andy Balder, Jeremy Swihart, they're on Instagram. I, I look up to those guys a ton. Mass Hardscaper put some beautiful projects in the ground. There's there's so many dudes. I'm afraid if I if I mention any more, I'm gonna forget people I really wanted to mention and then feel like I offended somebody. But my my t- some of my top guys are those dudes right there, and I I really follow them as to what they're doing mechanically, especially because I think they're really ahead of the curve when it comes to mechanization and figuring out like you've got to mechanize in this industry. It's too much hard work and too much heavy stuff to not have machines doing the bulk of the labor. Um, so those are, those are dudes I'm real into. 
But I mean, I listen to lots of business podcasts. I study and I read constantly and I just consume as much information as I possibly can. So, you know, just, just trying to constantly learn from, from everybody. There's everyone, no matter what stage or level of the game they're in, they have something, they're doing something. I guarantee one thing that you can learn from. It's, it's, I really try to be open-minded with, with watching anyone. Uh, but I really try to really only at the same time on social media, follow people that are bringing value. So Caleb, wrapping this interview up, since your days starting the lawn care business up until this moment in time, I'm sure you've learned uh, just a massive amount of things that have really helped your business take off. But I want you to think about that one thing that you wish you'd known from the beginning, that one thing that you've learned over the time that you wish you'd known from the very beginning. What is that? I mean, the number one thing is we are in businesses, right? So the number one thing is you have to run a business. And so from the very beginning, I wish, and it's like I say this and I say it tongue in cheek, kind of, of like, I had to fail the way I failed to learn how to do things the right way when it came to running a business. So I don't regret it. I don't know that I'd go back and change it if I could. Um, but if I could and things would still end up where they are now with my personal life and everything, I would say you have to learn to run a business and be profitable. You have to know your numbers. There is nothing more important than that. Number one, all the construction and stuff, you can learn how to do that too. And all the technique and all that, but you got to first run a, a proper business, I believe, but it doesn't mean it's kind of, one of those things like cart and the horse or the chicken and the egg thing. Like you can't run a great business and do crappy quality work. While you can do great quality work and run a crappy business, you really want you really want to run a great business and a good contracting company, or a great business and a great contracting company. Um, but I think the construction part always comes natural to me, always has. Running a business was something I really had to learn, and so I wish you know I had to put more emphasis on actually. And I say that too. I knew when my first company was going, I knew I was running that thing into the ground. I knew it in my heart of hearts, but I was young and ignorant. I was younger and more ignorant, let's put it that way, than I am now. And I want to make sure that anything in my story gets through. It's you've got to be profitable. You've got to make sure you're running a company properly. So there's that for closing, I suppose. Absolutely. Now, Caleb, I started following you guys there at Almond Landscape because of your Instagram, because of all the content that you're producing through your stories, through your posts, just some awesome stuff including some great guides with how to install pavers. Can you let our audience know where they can find Almond Landscape online, where they can check you out, and if they want to check out your guides that you got? So all our social media handles, uh, Instagram is our primary one. We're trying to ramp up YouTube, but our company pages on Facebook, of course, TikTok, Snapchat, you name it, any of them. And this is where branding, again, all of our all of our social media handles are at Almond Landscape. You'll find us on any of those platforms at Almond Landscape. Instagram is my jam. I absolutely love that platform a ton. I have so much fun on there. And it's mainly because I don't have the time to, to edit like YouTube requires. That's why I think I got so heavy into Instagram. But uh, then we, we do have some, and I appreciate you asking because we didn't talk about this at all. So thank you, sir. Uh, we do have two training courses out at uh, how to install pavers and how to install retaining walls. Uh, that we made a couple years ago because I was getting asked so many questions and still do. And I love it. I'm fine with answering all of them of like, where's a good place to learn how to install. And I didn't have like one real good source that like was everything I would want it to be in a training course or, a, you know, in a learning or knowledge based thing. So we decided to make our own. 
And that was kind of our charge there. And initially it's like, well, if we made enough money to cover our costs, that's great. If we made enough to pay the mortgage one month on the house, that's awesome. And so that was kind of our initial drive was just to like help people figure out how to do this stuff because there didn't seem to be like one real good go-to source for the young startup. And that was our charging uh, drive, you know, initially. So that's where we're at. So thank you for asking. Um, but yeah, we're all about Instagram and, and all the social media. I love it to death. It's really my, it's really my third company. We have Almond Landscape. We have Almond Landscape Social, uh, you know, social media. And then we have Almond Landscape Education. So we're, we're busy. 